2: You're listening to the best of the more than just code podcast.
0: No, I can't wait to be off. HFS. We just need that. We just need that Pied Piper solution. Come along. <laughs> Middle <laughs> out <laughs> encryption. That's the. The yeah, secret. That's the secret. Right. That's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to this special West Coast edition of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm your sometimes guest host, Greg Hill, in San Francisco, California, and I'm joined by my fellow West Coasters just down the road from me in San Jose, California, Mark Rubin. Hey everybody. And in Seattle, Washington, Jaime Lopez. How's it going? Tim is at the Air Canada Center at a concert as usual, and Aaron, I believe, is here on the West Coast, but couldn't be bothered to dial in. And join us so they send the regrets but they'll be back next week we hope
2: so greg how are things going at uh i heard something about instagram it was where you ended up going
0: yeah i am at instagram now congratulations thank you thank you um how are uh, you liking it? Oh, i'm enjoying it it's uh, a kind of small team it's kind of uh, a yeah. Um, I don't know what the word is, but it's not like all the iOS developers sit over here and the Android developers sit over there. But it's Mm -hmm. sort of more team-based. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm working on the the video infrastructure team. And so the iOS guys and the Android people and the back-end people who all work on video stuff all sit together. Okay. Um, So it's kind of nice. I guess it's not so nice because sometimes if I have an iOS question, I wish all the iOS developers did sit together and I could just turn around and ask them. But right, uh, right. it's nice that the stuff that you're working on um, if I'm curious about how Android works I can you know he's right there and if I want to know how the back end works like they're right there so yeah. I like that. So Greg
2: are you doing Objective C or Swift? Objective C. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's I just started writing it and it was fine. It's like muscle memory or riding a bike, you never forget I guess. Right, right. So I yep. honestly have not really noticed. I did notice when I was going through an array and sort of filtering and i thought i sure yeah. wish i had filter like swift array filter oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that would have been awesome but i didn't have it so i had to do it the old-fashioned way with a mutable array and all that so well, you
2: could always just use an ns predicate right
0: yeah what's the performance like on that anyway mm. uh, you know I, I
2: couldn't give you a metric but okay. i've never noticed any any worse performance doing that than with um
0: just a for loop yeah i believe it i mean that's what the predicate's doing behind the scenes right it's not like order of magnitude difference. It's kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I was never big on the predicates. That's a good. That's a good point, though. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone mm-hmm. always thinks predicates is core data, but I remember somebody mentioned something, and I said, "Oh, you could use a predicate, like, um, you know, apply it to an array." And they were like, "No, you can't." So I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, can. yeah, you can." No, I do that all the time. I pretty yeah. much
2: use it pretty much all always instead of doing for loops these days. Interesting.
0: Interesting. I don't, the only thing I don't yeah. like about it is it's kind of i gotta get this right A K V C kvc style stringly typed kind of when that's you're true. digging yeah. into it that's the only thing i don't like about it but otherwise you know it's, yeah so yeah. it has to be
2: with with real objects you can't really do it with um well i mean uh, more than primitive objects i guess so mm-hmm. i mean you can use predicates with with things like strings but it, it kind of defeats the the point so it, it's it's definitely much more useful when you have objects that have properties and you want to filter by the properties. Yeah, sure.
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what I was doing as well. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. like to dig into the property is kind of KVC. I, it is using KVC behind the scenes, right? I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah okay. Totally,
2: totally KVC. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think that would be the only my only downside to it, but it does it is much cleaner, I guess, for sure. Is there mm-hmm. um. You know when they say you shouldn't spin up an NS date formatter like every single time because it's very expensive to yes. uh, spin those up. Is that the same for an NS predicate? Mm-hmm. Are those expensive or no?
2: Uh they, they are fairly expensive, probably not as expensive as a date formatter. Okay. But but there are some tricks to that. You can create the NS predicate once outside of your your filter. Uh, in fact you only actually if you if you're gonna use a, a filter on a predicate, you only need one predicate. Mm-hmm. Right, but if you were going to do a predicate inside of a for loop, Mm -hmm. there's a way of setting it up so that you can create the predicate outside, but Mm -hmm. have it be parameterizable.
0: Right, And inside the
2: for loop, you can just apply a directory of parameters to change your predicate, and that's very fast.
0: Okay, is it, um, Mm -hmm. I forget what the language is, like kind of SQL style, where it's placed parameters or named parameters?
2: It's it's very SQL style.
0: Okay, with question marks?
2: Uh, oh, for you mean for placeholders? <laughs> yeah, for, is that how for, they do it? Wildcards. Uh, I'm, uh, trying wild to, cards? uh
0: yeah. I'm trying to imagine how what it looks like now. I've, I've...
2: So, no, for this for that kind of thing, uh, you mean when you're trying to replace it with a with a name parameter from a dictionary, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, you know, like I you skills use... like colon and then the name, or that's at least like how I yeah, landed no, no. like There's, Oracle. it
2: actually uses, uh, uses Objective C style, so uh, percent l. Uh,
0: At sign. Oh, almost like string replacement. or like a yeah, like a string with format style. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. not bad. Then so it's um, position based then, not name based. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 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 Hmm. So it's almost like preparing. Uh, Actually,
2: you know what? No, I I take that back.
0: Uh, You could do it both ways. When you if you if you just create a a predicate, sort
2: of uh, raw, you know, without using this this. Uh, This passing the parameters uh, you do use the the percent uh, at sign Uh but if you do pass in a dictionary of parameters then there is a different format which I think is a I'd have to look it up I think it is a dollar sign and then a name uh, and then the name is in your dictionary of parameters that you pass in
0: hmm okay okay so dollar it's kind of a mixture
2: name. of both, depending on... It, it may not be dollar sign. I, again, I forget the syntax, but...
0: but I'm looking something. it up, and yeah, you're right. They do dollar sign, and they do the name in like all caps, and then the dictionary version has like the camel case version. That's yes. What it yeah. Is. Yeah. Okay, cool. cool. I
2: think probably the all caps is probably optional because it's probably case insensitive inside that thing, but don't quote me on that.
0: Yeah, uh, that's just the way the example looks very weird. But mm-hmm. I guess they just want to mm-hmm. make it look like a like a variable. Interesting. I never, okay, the percent at sign version kind of looks familiar. But yeah, I think that's when you're creating it at runtime with kind of values that you want to plug in, kind of like right. string of yeah, formats. Yeah. But right. then the other one is right. more like SQL prepare, where you create this predicate with the dollar sign variable name, and then you just keep filling in different parameters. Okay.
2: Right, okay. right. Yeah, so so if you're if you're building the predicate from scratch in the middle of the for loop every single time,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you could do it with the percent at sign, but that would be the slow way to do it because you have to create a new nS predicate each time, right so for that use case you would you would want to create the single one outside of the loop mm-hmm. and then use this this uh parameter replacement method inside the loop,
0: okay, that's predicate with substitution variables for that's those, the one for those following yeah. along at home all right, I like yep. that yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. It does remind me of SQL. I remember when I learned SQL way back and I was always like, why would you ever want to prepare a statement and then just call it? That seems, right. You know? right. why don't you just put the string right in line? I guess I was like the poster child for that uh, Bobby Tables XKCD comic and SQL injection. So hopefully mm-hmm. none of my old code from those days is still running. <laughs> I would say I would love to see something like Link that's
1: a little easier to use than NS predicate.
0: Oh, that's a Microsoft technology, isn't it? It is. It, it's, uh, I have it's heard really good, good things about on.net. it. That's Link with a Q, right? Yes, L-I-N-Q. L-I-N-Q, yeah. Yeah, I've heard good things about it, for sure. We got several questions about photo filtering and back-end CDNs that I have no idea what they were talking about. But there was one good question from uh, At Third Beach. I believe that's Troy Hanna, is that right?
1: Yes, that would be Troy Hanna.
0: All right, so Troy Hanna, that's At 3rd underscore beach asks, uh, ask MTJC, if you had one piece of advice for a dev just starting out looking for the first job, what would it be? Good question. Maybe we can all go back in time and think about our own origin stories. Does anyone want to share some advice about um, what to do just starting out?
2: Sure. My, my advice would be
0: try to find something
2: where you can just learn as much as possible don't worry so much about getting paid the most. Don't worry about working necessarily at the most, you know, high profile company. Because it's really all about sharpening your pencils, learning your skills, uh, and just learning as much as you can about your trade. Uh try not to get stuck in a situation where you're working on one small little piece of something, uh, where you may become the world's expert in that thing, but you don't look at anything else because uh the next time you have to work on something different, you know, you you have no experience there. So I would just say, try to learn as much as you can.
1: Yeah, I think for for me, it's somewhat similar from my advice in that um, I think, you know, wherever you start with, um, you know, whatever language, whatever platform, I think a lot of folks, um, I see them online, you know, Stack Overflow or Slashdot or Hacker News, whatever the case may be. People are, are are sort of hung up on this idea of like, oh my gosh, I have to learn like the one true language or use the one true platform. And honestly, when you've been around long enough, you realize, oh, it's it's generally all the same stuff, just repackaged slightly differently. And so if you started to learn how to do development, you know, either as a hobbyist or in school or professionally, I wouldn't get too hung up if you're using Java, you're using Python, you're using Objective-C, you're using Swift. I think generally it's helpful to try to pick one that's relatively uh, modern and alive and has a community that you can, you can lean on and, and ask questions from and learn from. But I wouldn't be too concerned of like, oh, wow, like once I learn Swift, I will never have to learn anything again, right? Because five to 10 years from now, we'll all be talking about how, you know, bird something or other is like the new hotness and, and all of our apps are moving to that.
0: Yeah, I would tack a little bit differently and speaking about looking for your first job and focus on the people side of it. I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I just ma- I'll just i just make it up and say it's something like 80% of all jobs come from referrals and from knowing somebody. So I would say for me personally, being things like active on Twitter and writing on your blog or something like that, and just getting in touch with people online. Because I work from home for a long time, so I didn't actually meet people IRL, as they say, and I just met a lot of people online on Twitter and then maybe at a conference or something run into them. But I think that was a really good source of just, you know, job leads and things like that. And if you're if you start looking for a job, then you're sort of close network, Uh, whatever you use, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, uh, is a really good source of job opportunities. If you are going to be start looking, if you're going to start looking, because a lot of times jobs aren't posted and it's just people who are. You know, if I'm here with my team of 10 people and I know we need another two bodies, but we haven't gone around to posting it yet, but, you know, um, a lot of times those 10 people will go out in their networks and find people to hire. So I guess in addition to the technical advice, that would be my sort of human advice is to say just to reach out and start building those connections now um, if you're just starting out. All right, let's move on to a little FU. We have, I think we've got a couple of things Pinpost posted something on follow-up on what Playground support, which I'm not entirely sure what that is, but there's a link listing all of the uh, different frameworks and kits that you can have in Swift Playgrounds that's on the iPad. I think when they demoed it on stage at WWDC, they were saying, oh, look, I built an entire game, and I accessed AV kits, and I accessed all like core graphics and all of the frameworks that are available right in the Swift Playground. And so this blog post on Medium just lists the some of the frameworks that playgrounds do support. So it's not just, I'm going to write a calculator app or something, but you can write pretty full fledged apps within your Swift playgrounds. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So what this is in reference to is, and I think it was the last show we talked about the Swift playground that's now available on the iPad. And we're wondering a couple of things. One, since Apple very clearly posed it as for kids in, in all the presentations uh and a and a good uh, learning environment for kids we were wondering if if that's all it was if there was more to it than that and is it really possible to develop a full app inside of it and i think this is saying that uh the answer to that question is no it's not it's not just for kids there's there's a lot of stuff in there the second question was is it possible to develop an entire full app that's suitable for a submission to the app store uh Using the playground, and decided that, well, it doesn't have things like interface builder, it doesn't have a lot of the other tools that are associated with with building a full complete app. And I think I haven't read this article, but I'm scanning it now. I think what this is saying is that our assumption was correct that it's in terms of the tooling, uh, it probably is not ready for prime time for doing a fully fledged app store submittable app. You would still need to interface with Xcode in some way to do that piece of it. Although it does look like pretty much most of the frameworks that you would need to actually do the development seem to be included, which is great. Mm -hmm. So it's a good start.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can have your app running sort of full screen, right? It's always a kind of side by side view. You can't have your code and then say, okay, clear out the code and run the thing. And then it takes over the full screen and just runs your app, Right. It's always... I haven't used
2: it, but I, but I think you're right, yes. Okay. I mean, because you're always... Yeah.
0: It's running inside the Swift Playground app. It's not like you say build and run, and it installs a new app on your home screen. So I think right. it is like they demoed on stage. It was like the code on the left, and then your stuff is running on the right. So I'm curious about, like, if you had a UI view and you asked its bounds or something, it would just be half the screen, I assume. And there's it doesn't really shift around. I haven't tried anything that complicated in my Swift playgrounds yet. I've only just done
2: Yeah, I don't know. That that would be an interesting thing. Can you define a UI window and have everything be with respect to that UI window and have it be, you know, virtually sized the normal way. I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I know for like SpriteKit. I think when you set up a SpriteKit sprite scene, then you say you give it like a almost like a render target like you can say 5000 by 5000 or whatever and then it'll render mm-hmm. down to whatever your actual screen size is. So I imagine it does something similar again, just for sprite kit, you could say, I want to render my scene and here are the sprites that I want and my character moving left and right. But then, you know, on the actual iPad, you only have whatever, a 400 by 600 pixel points space or whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's how it works. You can't really go full screen is kind of my point and have a standalone app yet, but there is supposed to be some way to move your Swift playground over to Xcode kind of handoff style. I think I haven't tried that either. But I think they mentioned that um, towards the end of the, one of the presentations. Yeah, I think the the tone I get a
1: little bit from some of the discussion around, you know, is Swift Playgrounds just for kids, I think, in, in my mind, misses a little bit of the, here's the possibility and here's, here's what it is right now. Uh, and I think partially because uh, of two things. One is the way that, as you guys mentioned, that Apple really heavily pushed the, this is so easy, children could learn how to do this sort of thing and then it's also um, even as as relatively feature complete as this is it's not even vaguely close to being what you get with Xcode on macOS right so there's i think there's a little bit of disappointment there that people feel and and i think Tim had mentioned the last time something to the effect of like you know this is kind of like your sketchbook right you still use it as a legitimate professional tool when you're you know not sitting in front of your mac right you're uh, i think he mm-hmm. brought up Ayaka Nonaka's example of being on the train and then yeah. like, yeah, I just kind of want to tinker with stuff uh, kind of like the way you would as as an artist or, a, you know, engineer trying to you know figure out some sort of equation or something like I, I just want to have a sketch pad to deal with something and then prove out the concept and then move over to my, you know, the big dog tools to to do the, the full implementation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people did that myself included with playgrounds in Xcode, right? Rather than oh, I've got this massive project and I want to try something out. So I'm gonna bring in the class and instead it's like, no, forget it. I'm just gonna make a playground and try it what I need to, and then once I figured it out, kind of apply that to the main project. Exactly what you were saying, Jaime. But now it's like you can do that on the go on a separate device, right? Right.
2: And having said all that, it it, it really is a great educational environment. Uh, it is it is perfect for kids in schools learning how to how to code. They're not gonna tr- in most cases, they're not they're not really uh trying to build something that's meant for production that they're going to sell or 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 uh, or ship they're just trying to learn how the, how it works and learn some basics so it, it actually is really good for that
0: mm-hmm. and i think shipping sort of additional code starter code or libraries um, along with the playground like for example in the demo in the keynote there was like the character moving around and it's like okay somebody wrote all the code for that you know there's no such thing as mm-hmm. left and right and jump in ui Kit, like somebody had to write that but being able to ship a set of starter code to help with the teaching i think it's pretty cool and yeah I, mean, yeah I mean xcode playgrounds do that so i think it's great that the swift playgrounds um on the ipad will do that do you guys have ios yeah. 10 on an ipad installed and you've played
2: around with it i do not no i haven't used it at all yet
0: okay what i haven't you, i
2: haven't
1: um as far as ios 10 goes i've been considering picking up a um an iPhone SE and using that as sort of like the here's the latest and greatest beta builds testing because I'm I'm the kind of person that doesn't really put any of the betas on my primary phone because I will be severely disappointed if something goes wrong with it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 um, and I don't have an extra iPad so I'll probably have to pick up um, like a cheap mini or something maybe a a used or refurbed one to, to do similar type
0: things okay I have an mm-hmm. iPad mini retina the first retina i think it's the ipad mini 2 and i did sacrifice it to the ios 10 gods i was thinking maybe i'll get a a 9.7 ipad pro and then use that as my ios 10 device but um i figured before i go ahead and spend all that money i'll just install it on the ipad mini and uh it's worked out pretty well but i've only played around with the swift playgrounds a little bit just some pretty simple stuff but maybe i'll have to spend more time um with it now that i have it installed
2: no it's it's Sorry, is, is your goal in doing that just to to play in general, uh, to to play with the with the new tools, or to do some development in iOS ten? No, it was all uh, Swift asked,
0: Playground. That's all I wanted. That's why I put it oh, on the iPad. Okay. I do have an yeah, extra yeah. iPhone, and I would have put it on there, but I wanted Swift Playground, so that's why I put it on the iPad. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Yeah,
2: I find that for the I've started doing a little bit of work with iOS ten on some you know some uh, sample apps that I'm thinking about building. And I'm finding that the simulator is actually pretty good. Uh I'm playing around with the new iMessages or messages or whatever it's called, you know, with the with the custom stickers type of functionality. Mm-hmm. Uh and the simulator is, is actually pretty nice for that. It's it's set up in such a way that you can't actually send out messages, although apparently you can on a real device, maybe not so much with the with the extension. I I don't know because I haven't tried it. But but with the simulator it's nice because they've actually got they showed this in the in the in the sessions at WWC. They've actually got two sort of sample users on there. And if you send a, a message from one of them, it shows up in the other one. So you can kind of flip back and forth and see how things are working. So so that actually you know maybe even work better for development than than having it on two real iOS 10 devices because you have to keep switching back and forth.
0: Well, that's neat. They really made it easy to test message apps. They then. did. That feels like yes, the kind of thing yeah. that they would forget yeah. to do and then maybe add an iOS 11, but they got it right in beta one, huh?
2: Yeah. Well, I found one thing that's not hundred percent perfect uh, because the two users in the messages, you know, the, the fake users in the messages app are hard coded. You can't actually choose who to send the message to. Uh, in other words, there's no two field, right? You can't actually send a message at all. It only goes to the other one automatically. So, if your app depends on knowing who it's being sent to, which you actually have some access to now, which you didn't really before uh it it, it just doesn't uh it just doesn't work yet so it's not hundred percent perfect for development but but it's got some pretty cool stuff already
1: interesting uh mark quick question i I could have sworn that one of the sessions I was watching i think it was the engineering privacy for your users session mentioned yep. that you yep. don't that you get some sort of like um, UUID yes, or the yes. opaque token. That's
2: right. right. That's right. Yeah. And what that is, is you have a reference on your device that is always the same for that person, uh, no matter which messages you send from. So it, it, unless you delete the app from your phone and then reinstall it, then it changes. So say, say you know that you said you choose who you send it to, right, from your messages app. And you get back three identifiers for the three people that you sent it to. Those three identifiers will always refer to the same person that you sent it to. So you don't necessarily know uh, exactly who it was, but there is sort of a, you know, a, a a identifier name, right? The the public name that's available. So you can keep track of of some things about who has done what using the using uh, using the messages. Uh, although it, you're right, it's it's not permanent and it's not uniquely identifying completely. You know, you can't tell exactly who this was. So, in other words, you can't send out a, a complete spam email and then figure out who came back. But if you're sending it to a small group of people and you have some other independent way of knowing who they are, then you can at least keep track of who did what within that within that set. If that makes sense.
1: Right, right. So you can distinguish users within the the conversation, so you don't like trample messages and and, and everything, but you wouldn't know like purely from that identifier that, Oh, this is Jaime and he's in the Seattle area and he likes chocolate. Well, you,
2: yeah, I I think you would know it was Jaime. If you have Jaime in your address book and you sent it from your address book. So I think that identifier, I, I have to double check this, but I, but I think the way it works is I think that identifier is connected to your representation of that person. So if it's someone that you send from your address book, it'll tell you that that person in your address book did something, responded. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. So so say, say I know that I have in my address book, I have Jaime in my address book, and I send Jaime a, a message. And then it comes back with the identifier 123456. Well, I can look up who 123456 is in my address book and find out that it's Jaime. But if you forwarded it to someone else and then that person replied again, and that third person is not in my address book. I wouldn't know who that was.
1: okay, got it, got it. yeah got it. yeah, so it's all it's all contextual to the device that you're on um, that you can right. map some things, but you can't extend it to multiple devices and and figure out there exactly. got yeah. it.
2: right, right.
0: All right. I've got one additional follow-up item from last week. Last week it was reported. On this very show that uh, the number of Swift apps, the number of apps with a little bit of Swift in the app store was 10,000, but that number is actually a hundred thousand. So more than just code regrets the error, although Tim says the podcast regrets nothing, so he might cut that out. but that <laughs> boosts the sort of the low end of the number from half a percent to about five percent if we count a hundred thousand apps out of two million apps. Um, but then I had complained on Twitter that that's not even accurate because you have to consider apps that have been not just built, but apps that have been updated since September of 2014 or thereabouts. And so Tim's quick back of the envelope calculation said that in September 2014, there were about, I guess, 1.4 million apps in the store. And at this past keynote, Tim Cook reported that there were 2 million apps on the store. That leaves a Delta of about 600,000 apps. So Tim said, that's 100,000 of 600,000 apps, 16.7%. But that doesn't take into account um, apps that have been removed from the store, or again, that doesn't take into account updates. So I would say the range of the percentage of apps on the store that have some Swift in them is somewhere between five and 16%, which, depending on how you look at it, is not a lot or a lot already. Um, but that's just you know, it could just have one class in Swift, and Apple says, hey, they've got Swift, the Swift runtime, so there it is. So that's what the numbers are looking at from our point of view. I'm sure Apple has a more exact number, but they're not telling. At least they're not telling us.
2: Where do we get that hundred thousand number from last time? I don't remember.
0: It was in the keynote or, or the platform say the no. union. It was a hundred thousand, but somebody had remembered it as ten thousand, that was all. I think that was yeah, me yeah. because we I, I didn't have notes in for not the WWDC DC keynote.
1: Stuff right in front of me, and so I was trying to remember off the top of my head. I said, like, Oh, it's like 10,000, and I was off by a magnitude order of magnitude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the point isn't well, that it's it, is, is interesting, yeah. but uh, you, you know, it, it's still, I get it, it. I think the way I saw it at the keynote is that it was kind of semi implied, like, Oh, look, look how much is, is in Swift, and I'm like, Well, no, that's you know, if it's includes one single class where you know somebody somewhere on giant projects has probably tinkered with it that's that's interesting but it's not it's not the same right we're uh yeah haphazardly trying to uh to set it straight and and did a really poor job of that so sorry about that
2: i think there was if if it were a hundred thousand complete new apps from scratch written completely in Swift, that would be something that
0: would be news if you said five percent of all the apps on the store, out of the two million, even that's fine, are written entirely yeah. in Swift. Yes, that would be a big deal. But I think Tim Cook did say, oh no, maybe he didn't say. He said something like a hundred thousand apps, and some from some big companies like Twitter and something something else. So yeah, he did name some companies, but yeah, that doesn't say sort of how much of the how much of the app is in is in Swift. So that's a good point.
2: You're listening to the best of the More Than Just Code podcast because we can't record tonight because there's supposed to be tornadoes. Well, they say it's tornadoes, but I bet you it's zombies.
0: All right. What else are we talking about today? I put in a link about the new Apple file system, APFS. They can't reuse AFS or they can't use AFS, unfortunately, because that's already taken. But there was an article on Ars Technica, very pretty in-depth and long article called A ZFS Developer's Analysis of the Good and Bad in Apple's New APFS File system, And when they talked about the new Apple file system on stage and they mentioned things like um, snapshots and uh, copy on write, or I forget exactly what they said, but as they listed off these features, then I thought, wow, this sounds just like ZFS, which Apple was working on. I forget when that was. Was that Snow Leopard 10.6, if memory serves? And so that would be, what, four or five years ago that they had mentioned it? And uh, so anyway, when they were talking about APFS, I thought, oh, maybe they took ZFS or the core of it because it is under some kind of open source license and maybe they just kind of put some Apple-ish ideas in there. Um, But this seems to suggest that they did not because this, again, is by a ZFS developer who looked at the um, Apple file system and kind of gives his take on what he thinks of it and how it compares to the ZFS. So it's an interesting read if you're a file system nerd. The one point I would make about... um, The one important point I took from it was that It was very ZFS-like and does have a lot of modern features, but in true Apple fashion, Apple is really focusing on their needs. So, for example, it may not make a very good general-purpose file system, but it's very good for SSDs, and so Apple is kind of saying, well, watch TV, the phone, and even Macs now are moving to all SSDs, so we don't have to worry about spinning Rust anymore, so forget about it. That's what we're going to go for i think some of the complaints in the article were about like how this isn't good for general purpose stuff like you wouldn't just install this on your linux server maybe Um, but again i think apple is really targeting themselves and saying no we need to make this good for us and it's not for general use to install on your free bsd server or whatever Um, so yeah again if you're interested in file systems then check it out
2: yeah one could argue that apple's looking forward as as they tend to do and you know, in five years, it may be, or, or 10 years, whatever the number is, it may be that there are no more physical disk drives, magnetic disk drives anymore, because the price point will have changed, and, and SSDs are just cheaper for pretty much every application.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, sorry, assuming that that point is coming, then then this operating system may have more general applicability that it than it does right now but uh but overall actually I I read a a good chunk of the article I didn't have time to read the whole thing and and I agree it's it's actually a pretty interesting read uh you yeah, know I'm not I'm not an expert by any means on on file systems but but it was pretty interesting to read about some of the stuff that's going on under the hood there so I recommend it as well
1: yeah I've I've not read this particular um Ars technical article and I'll, I'll definitely have to do that um I think a couple of things that have come up in general conversation around, uh, APFS and I preface this by saying I'm definitely not a file system guru, so I vaguely know what I'm talking about in this area, but it's not going to stop me. What, <laughs> one thing was like around the, the data integrity pieces and what sort of inceptions it makes for, um, check and, and another, you know, like CRC type things. Yeah. Um, that from some conversations it sounded like well it's, some of these are or more realistic problems if you aren't Apple and spend the extra five dollars on you know the microcontroller the or the 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 RAM or SSD flash drives that are high enough quality to not have to deal with this problem right
0: yeah exactly yeah um, I think that was one of the complaints from the ZFS guy was that oh ZFS has checksums you know if you have bit rot then we can detect it and it only costs whatever it was 16 bytes per you know 100k or whatever it is so why wouldn't you spend that but then yeah i think like you said i the counterpoint is apple is like well we buy high quality stuff and in our testing you know we don't get bit rot or significant bit rot so it's not a concern so we don't need it so that feels very much like a you know if you're building a file system for the world you may say well we should be safe and do checksums and you know automatic error correction but apple's like no you know we don't need it because the drives that we provision don't have that problem so we're not going to do it right and the other separate
1: topic that people got really hung up on was the aspect of having you know shallow copies of things um particularly Mm -hmm. for things that are sort of like seamlessly moved uh onto the cloud or you know off of your device into the cloud and only brought onto your device um on some sort of magic, you're going to need it thing. Like you, you've used it recently, or it's something you, you tend to open up this same spreadsheet, you know, at 4 PM on Tuesdays, that sort of thing. And I feel like people brought up not only really weird cases that are like, yeah, that's, that's really hard to, to predict uh, that you're going to do the the case of, oh, but uh, you know, every july i go to the cabin in the woods and i and i need to edit this podcast i'm like oh come on dude like that's a hard one right like obviously like it would be nice to have a feature that says you know ensure that this file is on my uh my disk and and just move on with your life right because i think they're they're wanting it to be completely 100 percent magic and that's hard right like no matter what you do if you have 10 terabytes of data that that belongs to you and your hard disk or your ssd only supports one terabyte guess what there's 90 percent of your content (laughs) that might possibly be missing when you want it
2: in an offline mode yeah seems like there's sort of an easy fix for that though you could couldn't you just flag or they could add the capability to flag a file of as being uh always available and so it doesn't get put on the cloud and so things like music and movies and things like that, which it would be nice to have always available, but not necessarily critical to have always available. Those can be put up in the cloud and things that you just absolutely have to have on your machines, you know, financial stuff or whatever that you can't do without those could be critical and those don't go up.
0: Yeah. I was, I was curious about how much if they've looked at their stats for fusion drive, because that was the kind of magical promise of that was that you have all of this, you know, you have this giant spinning disc and it would have your capacity, and then you have a smaller SSD, and that would be all your files that you use all the time, and then it would intelligently swap them back and forth. And it would always feel fast, but you would still have your terabyte of storage. And I wonder if they've gotten gotten some of their smarts from that, and now this is sort of one step further to say, no, no, not even have a spinning disk, it's going to be up in the cloud. Um, so I wonder if they've been collecting stats on that, and maybe they've figured out how to do it intelligently, yeah. but also I, I had
2: one of those at one point actually. Mm. And, and I found that it, it, it really wasn't, it never, at, at least with the technology that I had, and this was three or four years ago by now, probably it never really quite lived up to the, uh, always feeling really fast. Oh. <laughs> it still didn't feel that fast. Uh, I never had one. <laughs> um, so, okay.
0: okay. Yeah.
2: So I, I did the progression from a, from just a regular hard drive to one of those hybrid drives to a full SSD and the the really big jump happened with the SSD okay. without a doubt. Okay. It, it sort of wasn't that noticeable uh going from the from the the full hard drive to the to the hybrid. Oh. I guess you could argue that it would have been much slower if I had stayed with the with the with the full hard drive and and the hybrid allowed me to not perceive it as being getting worse uh than it than it would have been uh, it, but you know I, I don't know. Okay.
0: And, Jaime, to your point, in this in this article, if you scroll down to the data integrity section, there's a screenshot of some kind of panel, and it does split out applications, documents. GarageBand is a separate thing in the source list on the left, and it's mm-hmm. I think you can pick sort of what you want to put in the cloud and what you want to keep locally. Or maybe it was Mark who was saying this. So I think you can say, uh, my mail is important to me. Please keep it local. But photos, that's two gigs. Not so much. That is okay to store in the cloud. So I think they have segmented it not just by folder, because, you know, that wouldn't be very Apple, but almost by application and saying, you know, mail is probably important, photos, maybe it's okay, movies, obviously, we can store in the cloud, GarageBand, I don't know, up to you, check the box or don't check the box. So it seems like they are Mm -hmm. thinking about giving some options, but probably, I don't know, I'm sure if you did, you know, Disk util something on the command line, you could flag, put the right bit on to, um, you know, make the file stay local. But it looks like Apple is going to... Offer at least some kind of interface to um, let people do it. it. Looks like on like an application by application basis.
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah, that seems like a, a pretty reasonable compromise here.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, is that it for uh, ZFS and APFS? I think Jaime's got a more to, more to be seen later. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, okay. maybe another two yep. years. Is that what this article says? That they're targeting like 2019 or something. But I read somewhere that's there are a whole bunch of, oh, there's a funny command line flag. If you want to install it, that's like, yes, it's like hyphen, yes, I realize that th- I may lose data by using APFS or something like that. Something ridiculously long. Uh, yeah, so that, yeah, and you have yeah. to do that to uh, get this. Um, I have been warned that APFS is pre-release and that I may lose data is the flag you have to put on DiskUtil. So, and there are a whole bunch of things like you can't use it on your boot drive and you can't use it with this and you can't use it with that. So I think it's still at least a year or a couple of years away. Mm-hmm. All right. Jaime's got an interesting, very interesting looking article about GraphQL, so I'll let him take it away. Yeah, so this is a blog post
1: by um Ordothorax from Artsy, and it describes how they're using um GraphQL, the Graph query language um and runtime. Um, I think it's from, from Facebook. Yes, exactly, from Facebook. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I found it kind of an, an interesting approach, right? So they it doesn't focus too much in this article around um, you know Facebook specific needs for it, but you can kind of infer it from from the bit that's mentioned there, right? That this this GraphQL sort of sits in between your mobile client or, or any client doesn't have to be mobile, could be a you know a web application and the sort of traditional APIs that that might be written. Um, especially if you have a, a microservices architecture where, um, authentication is one thing. Um, yeah, this bit of data around, uh, movies is one service. This other one around favorites is totally different or books is different. And in artsy's case, they have some content that needs to be displayed sort of together. Right. And, and Orta talks about the fact that normally the way you handle this is, is a couple different ways. You've either make several different requests. So you you go and you get some IDs from one service and then you turn around and you call another service and help populate some more of that data structure that you need to throw on the screen. And that has the issue, of course, that like some, you know, network requests can go wrong. So the more of them that you do, the more likely it is that you're going to have problems stitching together the content you need. There's uh, performance and latency issues with that in terms of, you know, uh, opening and, and tearing down the uh, the connections on the network. And it's... Um, also, uh, another pr- approach to do you know deal with that is to have a you know forget trying to can, you know keep things clean and, and perfectly oriented, you've just got a okay, look, we know that the Android client or the iOS client needs this particular bit of content. Great. We're going to make a new endpoint that will return all of that content. And six months from now when we decide that we need some other bit of weirdo content that doesn't normally go there, well we're going to create another endpoint to deal with that. Uh, And the GraphQL side kind of approaches it from the, okay, if you have something that is stitching everything together, then you can really just ask for, look, I want, um, in this case, I want artwork and I want to know, know, is the price hidden and is this inquirable, which uh, apparently comes from different services. And and in here, it, it seems really interesting where you're not trying to do like API versioning right, of saying like, oh, well, okay, version 2.2 of this API will return those three things, but 2.1 does not, and 2.3 has this other element, and we changed the data type, and making it much more um, sort of easy to have context around what content am I asking for, and from the uh, API's side, you know, being able to more logically reason about you know what is the the context and what is the grammar for this this API endpoint because you're not having to think about how does it migrate over time, right? Because you, you've gotten something that stitches things together. And I, I found it kind of interesting because it reminded me of a, another article by um, Sam Newman about uh, a design pattern or a software architecture pattern, uh, BFF. And that's not best friends forever. this is um, <laughs> <laughs> this is backends for front ends. Where it takes a very similar approach of, you know, you've got these general purpose uh, web service APIs, and uh, you know, generally microservices, and then instead of having you know your API teams always trying to chase the mobile clients or or other clients that, that come down the pike and say, oh well, uh, we don't have a service that does exactly what that thing needs, so we've got to create you know another endpoint for this. Um, it actually. Gives people the flexibility to say, okay, well, if you are the mobile client and you know what you need, if you create a, a middle layer that stitches together the content that you need, then everything's great. And if there's another client that needs something kind of different, they can stitch something together too and, and sort of decouple uh, the traditional like backend API microservices team from the, you know, I need to throw bits on a screen, um, you know, client team. Um, I've not actually done any of this before. Um, I've worked in sort of the more traditional routes where a you know, backend first person or maybe even me was responsible for, for dealing with the API. I've, I don't know if either of uh, if you two gentlemen have, have dealt with this.
2: Any any thoughts? No, I, I haven't. This this looks really interesting to me, actually. I'm kind of scanning through it right now. Uh, one thing that I will point out that they're kind of careful to, to not mention, I think, is that this is not restful at all as far as i can tell and and there's there, there are religious wars quote religious wars over over that um a lot of back-end people are well and front end people as well are are of the mindset that that uh everything should be just a single every call should represent a single piece of data right and and moving back and forth that's a whole that's a whole restful concept and and this kind of does away with all that and and to be honest i'm I'm not sure that's a bad thing uh, because I think uh, in the mobile world it doesn't always make sense to just have a call be a essentially an API call be essentially the same as you know a database lookup where you're just trying to pull a piece of data. Doesn't always make sense to just do that. So I kind of like this concept. Again, this is my first exposure to it, so I have to look at it a little bit more deeply. But I kind of like it.
0: Yeah, I think the superpower for GraphQL. For me is that, uh, as Jaime mentioned, it's sort of request coalescing. You don't have to say, give me all of the employees and you get it. And it's like, okay, find all the ones with this and then give me their names. And then it's like, okay. And it's like, okay, now based on the look, it's like, that's way too much stuff. And also, um, we were talking about SQL before, like the traditional ways is you would say select star from whatever. And you would just get all of the fields back, which can waste a lot of space. And so, again, the thing about GraphQL is you can just say, here's the kind of entity that i want possible search parameters here are the fields that i want back and if those fields are sort of like joins and those are themselves records you can then say okay and of that um company field i just need the name and the address but all the other crap just forget about it and then you send that through and and the other thing i
2: like but i think it's i think it's even more sorry to interrupt you mm -hmm. but i think it's even more than that if i'm understanding it right where you mentioned that you know you would set up your request being here's my entity and then filter it but it seems like it's more than that. It's it's not about a single entity. You can say, here's all the things related to some function that I need to do. Mm-hmm. And I may need, you know, seven different entities. I need one one photo image. I need three model objects. Mm-hmm. I need uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can you can kind of put that all together into one into your JSON description, your query. And then you get all that back at once. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, it's uh, it's not it just... I mean,
0: if you had a particular yeah. ID that you wanted to look up, then you can get mm-hmm. that and get one record back. But you can also, like we were talking about before, you can do a filter and say, I want this kind of thing and put a limit on it as well, just like SQL, and you will get multiple mm-hmm. records back mm-hmm. as well. And the other thing, the second part I like about the syntax is the request matches the response. And so it makes them very easy to... It's it kind of lacks surprise, right? You say, right, right. Uh, in this example, it's like ID additional information is price hidden, and then the, the JSON you get back, surprise, surprise, it's ID additional information is price hidden. So you get back exactly what you asked for, which I like, and I believe on the back end, I think as Jaime mentioned with like versioning. So if you, um, additional information doesn't exist in the version of the server that you're talking to for whatever reason, then I think it just comes back as nil. Like that's an option. It'll just come back as null or false or whatever. Um, If it's, if it's not available and if it is, then it'll fill in the data. So it's almost a little, it can be almost a little objective C like where, um, you know, calling nil is like a no op. So it's kind of like that with the searches sometimes. Um, But yeah, I really like the putting it all together into one request and then, Again, it looks JSON-ish, and then the data that comes back is JSON as well. So, I'm definitely a fan. Yeah, something to be said about um, having very straightforward mapping between those uh,
1: those things, because I've uh, mm-hmm. I've worked in an environment where an item, you know, in the database became a thing on the wire, which became some other thing when it was being mapped, and then became an item again on the local client database. When I yeah. ask the question like, "Oh, why isn't it just an item all the way through?" This is really hard to keep in
2: my right. head. Well, just as an aside, this is this is one of the reasons that I'm looking forward to having Swift on the server, so that you could do things like have the same model definitions on both ends, and uh, say, for example, you use Core Data or some of the database on on both ends, and you want to sync them up, then you can you can guarantee because everything is written in the same language, you can use the same you know the equivalent of header files or whatever. Uh, you can you can always guarantee that what's what's being uh, sent over the wire exists on both ends and without any kind of mapping. That's that's what I'm looking forward to about having all this stuff uh, about having Swift on the server side.
0: The other cool feature you know, that was just other cool feature about GraphQL. I'll mention is there's a thing called Graphical. That's Graph I Q L. So it looks like Graph Q L, but they call it Graphical. Anyway, it's almost like a Playground. And you can, um, there's a link here to something called GraphQL Hub. Um, I put a link in the notes as well for it. And you can query, it says query popular APIs using GraphQL in your browser. So, for example, you can click on Twitter or GitHub or Reddit. And then on the left is the GraphQL code. It's kind of like a JavaScript fiddle or a Swift Playground on the web. And it's got the GraphQL on the left. And then you hit the play button. And then it actually runs the query and shows you the results on the right so it's a really good example just to see um, what a query looks like and what a response looks like and this actually is working it's actually calling out to twitter or github or reddit or whatever else so we just want to play around and see what graphql is all about i like i really like these kind of web-based tools to let you play around with the um i was going to call it the api not quite api but um making these kind of queries uh through graphql
1: yeah check it out if you're interested that was really cool I did try the GraphQL hub one with the, the Twitter example and um, mm-hmm. you know put in my own Twitter ID and I was like oh look yeah that's me I have uh, let's see tweets count twenty thousand one hundred and fifty four Wow <laughs> uh, my most recent tweet was to uh, a friend of mine related to the um, using flask with the Amazon echo and I was like wow that is super powerful oh and before I forget about um Orda's blog post, uh, as if there wasn't enough controversy, uh, he says, with with uh, just being funny. Um, they have also are using uh, React Native in one view controller in their app. And not only just React Native, but also Relay that goes with that, where uh, they're saying here that Relay, you know, views can declare a fragment of the GraphQL query that their respective view needs, uh, putting it in, in a very unusual spot, I think, for for most folks, it feels much more like a um like a data binding mechanism where they say here, like, oh, um, you know, the biography view declares, you know, you need to grab a bio and a blurb for, for my particular needs. So that's also like a very sort of different way of thinking about it versus like other architectural pieces where you know that content is hidden way, way, way down and, and abstracted away through like, you know, models and view models possibly somewhere in the line.
0: I was gonna ask you that, is that Data binding? Is that the view saying, I am going to show this person's bio, and I'm going to put the GraphQL fragment right in here for bio, and then that will just show up in the view when it's done? I'm not I'm... familiar with Relay or what all this stuff is, but that's kind of what it looked like to me. It was like a, a binding, a view to a like a model or some kind of bit of data that's coming from GraphQL.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not a... Uh... I don't know
0: anything at all about React Native or Relay, but when
1: I, when I read what's written here in the article and the little code snippet about you know uh, Relay around the uh, the biography and saying like fragments you know for the artist uh, the Relay QL fragment is on um, artist which sounds like a like an entity with bio and blurb and presumably if you had you know other things on there like. You know, gallery or some other bits. Those are probably defining their own little bits as well. And if it wasn't here in this article, it might have been in some of the the articles that Orda links to uh, within this blog post about um, almost having like server-based view models in this scheme. Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent, you know, view models because view models still do a, a fair amount of, of transformation, and you wouldn't want your server to necessarily. Always be worrying about, you know, transforming things in just a particular way that you would want for the client. Um, If only for things like uh, user local preferences or uh, locale settings, Uh, those would be kind of dicey to to pre-do on on the server. Um, But it still kind of fits, right? Where you're you're sort of just like asking exactly for what you need and plumbing it straight through is, is I think, the, the point there.
0: Yeah, I did a little bit of Angular, and it just kind of reminded me a little bit of that. And I was just thinking, wow, is this actually calling out to the server and getting the data? Like, That's amazing. But yeah, I'm not familiar enough with React Native or Relay or any of this stuff. Maybe GraphQL, yes, but the other stuff, not so much enough to know exactly how it's working. So um, yeah, I was just curious about that.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. It'd be like a cocoa binding that could that could do
0: network calls to get its data yeah, exactly like it's not just this field goes to this yeah. view but the one yeah. where it does the last mile as well and it's like oh I will fetch that data for you too you know so that seemed pretty cool if that's how it works
2: well have you guys ever used core data in iCloud
0: I no, like the core I data syncing the iCloud core
1: data syncing
2: yeah yeah uh well isn't there a isn't there a version where the Database is completely stored in the cloud, and you basically just do your queries to the cloud.
0: Yeah, I think it. There is still like behind the, There is still like a local copy behind the scenes, this and it syncs, okay. it syncs. Yeah. the changes. It's almost like a transaction. I th- I don't know. It's it's like it's a yeah, transaction yeah. Okay. log that goes. Okay. But yeah, I've tried it before with mixed results. Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where I was headed with that was this would be sort of similar to, if that existed. This would be similar to having say a fetch results controller mm-hmm. talking to that remote version of, of core data at the remote database without going through anything local, but maybe it's, it's different. Hmm.
0: Are you using it, Mark? I know you're the core data cheerleader. No, I,
2: I don't use it. Yeah, no, I I don't use, I don't use it in the cloud at all. Okay. No, I use it locally okay. all the time, but I don't use it in the cloud.
0: Okay. All right. We've got this other article here, Mac rumors, iPhone seven. I'm not sure who put that. Was that none of us again?
2: Uh, actually, that might have been me. I mentioned
0: something about blush touch sensitive uh, home sensitive. button.
2: Yeah, okay. yeah. So Mac Rumors was spreading rumor, uh, which <laughs> they do they want to do. Yep. Uh, that uh, one of the new features in the iPhone Seven, which you know we've been hearing that there's not going to be too much different. Actually, I guess we've been hearing a lot about that. But but this would be a pretty significant change if it happens. And what they're saying is that they're going to introduce a touch. A, a home button that actually is part of the screen as opposed to being a separate button. And so it'd be flush to the surface It, it would and, and handle force touch.
0: I think they said it would be like if you have a force touch trackpad, it's, I mean, it technically does move a little bit, but the click is sort yep. of entirely simulated, let's say with a little bit of haptic feedback and a little bit of sound. So I think this is going to feel like you're clicking the home button as usual, but it's just going to be like a force right. touch uh, trackpad. Yeah.
2: So it's not a physical button anymore. That's what I was going to yeah. check. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that uh, that would make a lot of sense, I guess. And and actually, that it's it's similar in concept to uh, what they're saying about now about the new MacBook Pros, along with the the LED function keys, the OLED function keys, mm-hmm. that they will presumably have some kind of force touch pad as well in there. So it could be a kind of similar technology going into this. Hmm. So so maybe this maybe this uh, these little bits of rumor together are all implying something big is coming
0: yeah one thing i have noticed using ios 10 on my ipad is i because there's no touch id on my ipad and so i Mm -hmm. open the smart cover i get the lock screen i of course slide to unlock and then i get the list of widgets and it's like oh you have to push the home button and then it will ask for your passcode so i don't know how that works with touch id if you still have to actually push the home button once and just leave your finger on, and then that will do the unlock. But I'm I have to I'm gonna have to train myself out of swiping to unlock the phone and to actually push the button. So if that's the case, I can see maybe why Apple would want to get rid of the physical button and just say, uh, you know, just leave your thumb on there and just push a little bit more, and then you know we'll detect that as a press. So that seems cool to me. Hmm, that's interesting. So that's that's something that's built into iOS 10. Yeah, because if you, again, this is on my iPad with a smart cover. So when I open the cover, the, you know, I see my wallpaper, but if you swipe, if you do the slide to unlock and swipe your finger towards the right, then that's notifications. If you're on the kind of Mm -hmm. home lock screen and you swipe towards the left, that's now the shortcut for the camera, right? And so if you actually, if I actually want to unlock the phone and I want to enter my passcode, I have to push the home button and then that brings up the. I have a complex alphanumeric password, so it brings up the keyboard. I type in my passcode, hit enter or done or whatever it is, and then that unlocks the phone. So, whereas before I'm used to opening everybody. the smart cover, swipe, enter my passcode. Now I have to open the smart cover, push the home button, and then enter my passcode.
2: Right, right.
0: Um, so again, this is on a non Touch ID device, so I don't know how it works on a with Touch ID. If you uh, if you have to, you know, push the home button and leave it on there, because I know a lot of people with iPhone the uh, 6s and 6s plus because that the touch id is so fast a lot of people were like oh no i want to see the lock screen and so i have to either press the sleep wake button or i have to push the home button to wake up my phone with a finger that's not registered so i can see the notifications on the screen so maybe this is also Hmm. apple's response to the touch id being so fast is that they want one more action to unlock your phone now that the uh, the list of widgets is so useful and the quick access to the camera is pretty cool
1: Right. And you're doing it on an iPad. So I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. So they talked a lot about iPhone having the raise to wake. So you raise to wake, you can see your lock screen and then you, mm-hmm. you just put your finger on the touch ID sensor and it unlocks, uh, therefore yeah. solving the problem of like, Oh no, the touch ID is way too fast. Uh, so. yeah.
0: So there's no click. Is that what you're saying? Raise to wake and then just touch your thumb to the touch ID and that will unlock it no no click needed
1: i might be not remembering but that's that wouldn't surprise me because that's that's sort of how it works on um so i have a a six plus and uh you know if i get a notification and my you know my lock screen lights up i can just you know lightly put my my finger on there on, on the home button without actually pressing down and it will register and unlock so I don't see why it would be um, any different for, for iOS 10 where, you know, raise to wake and then just lightly have your finger on, on the touch ID sensor so it can register and then unlock. I'm not 100% clear about uh, your situation with iPad. Like, I don't know if that's intentional or not. Like, I don't remember them talking about raise to wake with uh, with iPad.
0: Yeah, I should, I guess, take off the smart cover and try it out and just pick it up and see what happens. I don't have it uh, close at hand, but... um Yeah, you're right. They never mentioned the iPad. So maybe I'll test it out and uh, send some follow-up. There's also a note here saying that the physical home button is like the thing that breaks the most. Although I haven't heard of breaking home buttons lately. I know back in like the iPhone four days, it was a big deal, but um, I'm sure they're glad to get rid rid of one more moving part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm,
1: I'm, I've also not had that problem for a long time nor heard of anybody with that but I'm
0: extra paranoid so I try to use the home button as little as possible <laughs> I use a,
2: I, I've never had that problem
0: I have never had it either but I have um cuz all of my my family they give me their old phones when they're done with them and I think I don't have one from my family members I don't have one phone with a sort of 100% working home button so I don't know what these people are doing but hmm. all of my phones are are perfectly fine so Maybe they're throwing them around or they have very heavy thumbs or something.
1: Yeah, it was like the 4 or the 4S that um, that had the replacement um, home button program. Mm-hmm. And I, I distinctly remember it was one of those two devices because I, I tried to be smart. And I was like, aha, well, I'm going to use the power button and not use the... You know, just to kind of look and see what what what's on the oh, screen. Oh, and your
2: power button. Yeah. Died. I had an iPhone five power <laughs> yeah. button die. I was like,
1: oh my gosh. Yeah. And the five S they like beefed it up because everybody yeah. was just as brilliant as I was.
2: I had the dead power button on one of my phones and on my iPhone four I had the broken uh mute switch. Did you ever have that one?
0: I have never no, had that. Never no. had that.
2: The the rocker switch on the side yeah. that that mutes on and off. That snapped off on, on I think it was my iPhone four, way back when.
0: And just to prevent any more more than just code regrets the error, that's, of course, the sleep-wake button that we're talking about, not the power button.
1: Oh, is that what it's officially called? <laughs> I mean... Oh, yeah, I believe yeah, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it it the
0: power button, but it is officially the button, sleep-wake right. button, I think. Just like it's not the mute switch, it's something else? I forget what it's called. Isn't that one called something else? The ringer silent button? Because, you know, it doesn't actually mute the phone, like if you have an alarm. So I think they don't like to call it the mute switch. Uh, yeah, it. the silent ringer I forget button. what they call Maybe, it. That may yeah. be... Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Just to prevent any yep. feedback from coming in. Although we do love the feedback. Right. All right. right. <laughs> Should we go around the table and Sweet. see if anybody has any picks and perhaps stop at Mark first? My pick was an
2: article on The Verge uh, that will put the link in to the show notes talking about the, the title is the ultimate Apple IO death chart, which is a great title. <laughs> uh, and, but it's kind of a fun little article. It's not too long. And it's, it's actually fairly light. Uh, but it's a it's a history they've compiled of all the different ports i o ports on the different hardware macs and and iphones et cetera going back to essentially the beginning of apple you know early early eighties uh starting with the a d b which was for those of you who remember that was a proprietary apple uh port that was used to connect keyboards and and uh and mice uh that looking at the chart, that lasted from 1985 or so to uh, to just before 2000. So that must have been just in the in the Mac, uh, the early Macs. Mm-hmm. And it goes through you know, everything: SCSI, VGA, floppies, CDs, DVDs, all, uh, all the way up to Lightning Thunderbolt and HDMI. And really, the 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 main feature that they're trying to point out in, in compiling this is the headphone jack. The headphone jack is the one jack that's been around forever since the beginning of of time in in Apple in Apple terms, uh, and, and you know everywhere else it's ubiquitous, right? These three and a half millimeter or two and a half millimeter, uh, you know, cylindrical plugs. Yeah, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, if you'd seen them, and and the rumor is that that's going away in the iPhone 7 to be replaced by a Lightning connector. It's it's kind of interesting. To just take a look at the chart and you know from a high level view and see these things do not last forever. these technologies, and in fact, the lifespan, except for the headphone jack, seems to be about fifteen years plus or minus. Uh, I remember when floppy drives went away and it was the you know the, the most crazy decision ever made. And how can they possibly ship a, a computer without a floppy drive was was sort of the conventional wisdom at the time. And now, you know, who even notices, right? There's not even a, a, an optical drive in most of these devices. So, so just, it's just kind of interesting. It's, you know, there's, there's nothing earth-shattering here, but it, it kind of gives a nice perspective on on how things change and, and how time, you know, time goes by. Uh, and if the headphone jack does go away, well, we won't notice it after a few years. It, things will, something else will come along and replace it. But it's a fun article. It's, it's a real quick read. And the chart is really the main the main takeaway that's uh that's in, in the article. It's just kind of an interesting thing. A little bit of history. Poor Firewire. Yeah, Firewire. I mean it it was around for a long time, you know, it was around for fifteen years, but it just kind of never never quite got on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um it
1: is interesting to see these laid out like this, because I think somewhat anecdotally, the the general populist feeling is that Apple is coming out with new connectors all the time. And it's yeah, you know, like, like right. every, every year there's a new connector and it's actually quite the, quite the opposite there. Not no, nothing yeah. is shorter here uh, than what,
0: seven or eight years. It looks like uh, maybe VGA is. Yeah. It looks about 10 year under 10 year ish for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and Apple wasn't driving that one. The changes there.
1: Right. And, um, not to get too far into, you know, I've certainly heard several bits of, of radio and then read several uh, different diatribes about the uh, the headphone jack. And I think people are comparing it to the, the wrong thing. I don't think it's comparable to the floppy, which, you know, was an altogether different thing where you have something that is intensely ubiquitous and is at the time that they're talking about, I've heard some folks say, oh, well, there were better options like, you know, Iomegas zip disks, which yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you, I had 20 of those damn things (laughs) and and they were not better. Like they, they had better attributes, but they were not better. If you remember the click of death, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I I know exactly from that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, oh, they were, you know, CDRs. I'm like, "Uh, no, they were hella expensive at the time you're talking about. And, you know, broadband wasn't available. So what were you going to do? If you had 10 megabytes of stuff that you wanted to give to your friend, you were going to get out 10 floppy disks and use that. Cause it was cheap and easy, right. To sneaker net it. You're not going to burn a, a full dollar to $2 on a CDR. Like that's just crazy. I was like, I just want to give this person one file. Um, mm-hmm. and the other thing that I would compare it more accurately to is probably the 30 pin when that went away. Right. When, when, there was talk of like, it's going to go away. Everybody was losing their minds. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have all these connectors. I have, you know, all these docks have bought, you know, my entire life revolves around this 30 pin connector and my, my, by golly, I just bought a
0: BMW and it has the 30 pin connector. They're screwing me over. And, uh, and I think that was the one where everyone said, oh, Apple's always changing the port and the connector when lightning came out. And it was like, I don't know people were like crazy or don't know but i think that's when the sentiment first came out of apple always getting rid of this stuff even though the 30 pin kind of shipped with the ipod and you know that was the first connector well i guess firewire shipped with the original ipod but yeah
1: yeah and and at the time we didn't know all of the benefits that that lightning would bring i was like well okay it's a little bit smaller and okay you know maybe it charges a little faster and, and other bits nothing that would have like if you went back to that time you definitely wouldn't have been like oh man you 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 have to throw away all of these and go to this new standard, and I think it's very similar in my head with the headphone jack of like, yeah, it's going to be a somewhat awkward transition. But then, you know, five years from now, you'd be like, holy smokes, who the heck is still using the old headphone jack? That's crazy. It's terrible yeah. for X, Y, and Z reasons.
2: Yeah, the next generation will will wonder, will be shocked to hear that we ever had headphones that were connected by a wire to to a device. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, as I sit here looking at my keyboard and mouse, which are not connected by wires.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yep. All right. That was Mark's pick. Of- I had to go back. That was Mark's pick of the week. Hi, May, Do you have a pick? Or two? Or 10? Or 15?
1: Uh, <laughs> I only have, uh, I only have two this time. Um, the first one is Git stand up. So this is a, a little tool that you can get from it. Uh, well, it's open source. You can get it from homebrew. What else, um, you can use NPM to install it. You can install the thing using curl. Like there's all sorts of options. Uh, all it is, is just a real quick sort of plugin for your, your Git usage. So if you're like me and you're in an environment where, um, you do standups or, you know, Weekly reports or whatever the case may be, where you kind of need to remember what did you do, you know, yesterday or what did you do last week, what happened on Friday. Uh, I'm really terrible at remembering those things, especially on the Friday to Monday timeframe. And just by running this one command, you know, git standup, it'll show you the um, abbreviated version of what you yourself did in your your git repository so you can be like oh yeah okay yeah i I did these five things that's what i did yesterday thank you very much and uh i've also found it useful in in situations where i've had to um report somebody else's status right it's like oh so and so is going to be out of the office oh okay well uh, i guess i got to represent their side at the uh the daily meeting like holy smokes what did they do what did they say like well just go look in the repo and say oh this is what they did i literally know what they did because they they committed it to the git repo so it's 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 not like a mind blowing thing, and and if you're you know off by yourself, uh, it, like as an independent developer or, or something, like it, it may not be the most useful thing. But if you're in you know larger team environments, I, I find it really helpful. And pick number two. Pick number two is um, you know it, it it's not really new. It's it was new to me because I'd forgotten that this is capable in iOS nine. So it's not fancy new like iOS ten, but it's uh, detecting low power mode. So, um, what we have a link in the show notes is for a blog post on, you know, what it is that you can do with that and, and how you can detect it. And I, I tried this out and it's, it's pretty nifty. So if the user has, um, has decided to put their device into low power mode, or they're in that really critical, I think it's sub 5% where the device switches itself into low power mode. You can listen for that, that, that sort of event happening, or you can detect uh, right from the get-go that you're in there and if you decided to do so you could do whatever's appropriate for your app right like maybe maybe you stop trying to um perform some sort of uh image indexing or maybe you turn off the um the uh gps or maybe you switch it to more of a a low power mode like okay i don't really need to know as frequently just let me know when there's major changes in in direction or location you know that sort of thing i thought that was it was mind-blowingly easy to do. There's one, like, two or three different methods that you can call or notifications to listen to. You can be not only, like, a good citizen, um, as folks get kind of grumpy about battery usage on their on their devices from apps, but also it's, it's also just nice because you can decide, like, what is critical for you, your app, right? Like, there's maybe a billion different things that your app is trying to do um, to provide, like, a full meal deal service. But if you're like, OK, like uh, there's only so many people that can get on the raft, uh, you can do the priority and the urgency. Uh, OK, the, these subcritical you know, subsystems, they they can shut off for now until we get into a power situation. So I highly recommend people uh, take a quick look at this because it's it's a real easy read.
2: Sounds like we'll need a an update to uh, the Black Box app, if it's not already in there, <laughs> to use this. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> I won't go into it anymore. Right, we'll sound the
0: spoiler horn before that one. Uh, right. All right. <laughs> I have just one pick. I uh, can't be outdone, or uh, I'll have to be outdone by Jaime this week. And it is the unofficial macOS WWDC app. So I believe this was released last year, but it is... I'm, I'm just going to pick it again. And it's a app for mac os or os 10 whatever you want to call it because it does run on the current version and it is a player app so it has the video on the wwdc video it kind of shows an index of them you can go back previous years and it'll show the video on the left and it'll also show you the captions on the right so you can follow along and it has the all-important um, change the playback speed if you want to watch it at one and a half or 2x speed or whatever you want Uh, So it's an open-source app. You can download the source code, build it yourself, and then you'll have a nice Mac desktop interface to watch your WWDC videos. And of course, it's on GitHub, so it's open-source, and it's written in Swift. So if you want to poke around, and I always like just reading other people's code and doing, uh, well, at work, I mean, like doing code reviews, things like that. But I like looking at other people's open-source code. So if you just want to see a little bit of Swift code and how a Mac OS X app is built, then... uh, Check it out. So it's on GitHub, the unofficial macOS WWDC app. now That's my pick.
2: Too bad there's no tvOS version, huh?
0: I think there's an official tvOS app for that, isn't there?
2: Right, yeah. there yeah. is, there is, but it doesn't do the changing speed.
0: Ah, uh, right. I don't think you can. It have that. I don't think you can. Have, you have access to that in the in like AV player, do you? Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. But you're right. It's yeah, too bad that know. there's no... Maybe you should take that on as a project, Mark. You can port this. Yeah, maybe port so. Port this That'll over the tvOS. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Although I am finding that this year, I'm not watching the videos at higher speed like I always have in the past. Hmm. And and uh, I mean, there, there could be two reasons that I'm thinking of for that, actually. One is that I'm mostly watching them on the Apple TV, so I can't do that. So I've gotten used to watching them at normal speed. Uh, but the other thing is, I, if I'm not mistaken... The talks were mostly shorter this year. Uh, most of the talks were forty minutes long, and by the time they got finished editing them, a lot of them are only thirty or thirty-five minutes long. Yeah. So that doesn't seem like as much of a of a time commitment as as the you know close to an hour talks that they have been in the past. Mm, okay, good point. So maybe it's right, that. right.
1: Uh, I do think that um, that the playback speed can be definitely killer, though, if you're. Um, I mean, I listen to to right. audio that same or podcasts that that same way. And uh, one thing I would like, if somebody out there can can implement this feature, uh, I want sort of like a variable speed, right? Where uh, simply going at like one and a half x to two x, like blindly, like okay, that's that's cool. But you know, if you use Overcast, the the podcast app, you know, the smart silences thing is really cool because it removes you know dead silences. Um, and compresses it so you kind of get even more time back but i almost want kind of like a slightly different opposite you know complementary feature like time dilation because like you know anytime so i'm product managing this, this thing here so any anytime like the, the, the <laughs> apple people start going and saying like oh like you have to create a wonderful app and we can't wait to to see what you do with okay just, just just run that at 3x like they say that every time <laughs> right it's so cliche and yeah, yeah on the time dilation part, anytime they throw a giant slide that shows like, here are all of these methods or here are all of these frameworks. Like I want that to be at like half X or quarter X. So I have <laughs> enough time to read it and I'm like, Oh no, no, oh wait, wait, stop, wait, stop, stop. And then I have to go and, and, you know, scroll back like 30 seconds to try to find and pause exactly on that one yeah. slide that they showed for yeah. a half a second.
2: Yeah. And what the, what the, uh, what do they call it? The, the panning bar, what the name for that? The, uh, but the the bar the bar that adjusts the position that's it's not very accurate. So you're always going too far back, and then you have to yeah. You need like a, a thirty second and... skip
0: and a fifteen second back or a five second back button, something like, like that. Yeah. yeah exactly, on podcast yeah. players.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Well, yep. maybe you should file an issue, and maybe somebody will fix it on this repository. Who knows? Who yeah, I might
2: like, go ahead and do that because <laughs> that'd be super useful. <laughs> or if we do this TVOS version, we can use the Siri remote to to uh, to do that. Uh, Siri, go faster, and it speeds it up and just starts talking about uh, so, Siri. I don't know
0: who's going to do Jaime's job of uh, annotating every video and finding these sure. sort of, quote-unquote, interesting parts and the not-so-interesting parts and giving time markers for that, but uh, maybe someone can also take on that project if you find an issue. Well,
2: we can use the new, the new neural network <laughs> functionality to have it learn.
0: <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, it's going to be, like, a really hard problem, but I think the simple approach is, like, find any slide that has a ridiculous amount of text on it, like an, a statistically different kind of text on it. Because those are usually the slides I like, right? Where they've listed out every API or they've listed out uh, every one of the new frameworks. Because most of their slides are, you know, three to five bullets, very little text in general, more graphics. So I think you could train that just from an OCR standpoint, just count the number of words on the screen <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then time dilate from, from that index. Do the simple thing first. Always good advice. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that's episode 98 in the can. And uh, Jaime, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where should they look? On Twitter as at the hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you?
2: Send me an email at uh, markr at smapsoft.com.
0: And I am Greg Hio on Twitter. That's G-R-E-G-H-E-O. And we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming next week for episode 99. Um, just want to thank again our Ask MTJC askers. That was Troy Hanna, Nolan O'Brien, and Tim himself sent in a question, which we didn't answer, but it was kind of a silly question anyway. So if you do have anything that you'd like to ask or for us to address on an episode, just put hashtag AskMTJC and uh, your hosts will have a look at it. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next week. We'll all say bye now. Goodbye. Bye. bye. <laughs>
1: This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items to be talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you could, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that Recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: him though another concert unbelievable
2: he doesn't go to that many
0: concerts he has concerts. missed two recordings because of concerts in the last three four months i forget how long so yeah he goes to a lot of that, that that's a that's a fair amount that's just the wednesday concerts too right there could be concerts on, on other days that we've never heard about
2: well that's true <laughs> i just i just went to a concert last saturday up in uh redwood city
0: oh yeah too far yeah
2: um oh yeah you used to live right by there
0: greg i used to live in redwood city absolutely yeah Yeah.
2: this was did you ever go downtown to downtown redwood city at all
0: i did yeah i liked it it was nice you know
2: know the fox theater there no
0: No? although i do i did i do remember passing a theater i don't remember the name of it but maybe i know it's it's one
2: of these it's one of these old you know it used to be a movie theater way back when that's converted over to a concert yeah 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 so i saw buckethead there we were talking about this last week okay okay
1: yeah, that's right. Uh, that didn't make it onto the show. That was definitely post post show.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know who Rich that up. is. I'd have to I'd have to Google it.
2: It's it's he's he's out there. He's different. Um yeah, it's uh he's a guitarist that Oh, he actually
0: a, has a bucket on his head.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a phenomenal. I mean, I mean phenomenal guitarist. I mean, he's possibly the you know, the one of the the top 5 guitarists ever. Uh, just in terms of skill i mean he's just unbelievably skilled but he's insane does he wear a mask <laughs> yeah he wears a mask he wears a mask okay and and the bucket used to be he he actually got a new bucket for this tour uh it used to be just a a kentucky fried chicken bucket
0: yes that he'd wear yes
2: uh now he just got a nice plain minimalist white bucket that he's wearing
0: oh okay um, okay with the lighting i thought it was a pink bucket is what it looks like but maybe it's the it's that's just the lighting it's the stage lighting okay
2: it was was, yeah it was just a way and and he's he plays sort of i mean it's sort of a mix of metal but
0: wikipedia page says it spans diverse areas such as progressive metal funk blues jazz bluegrass ambient and avant-garde
2: yeah it's exactly right yeah it's it's just everything he can play anything and he does you know he plays anything and everything it's just it's just amazing um, so I recommend it if you ever, if he ever comes, actually, I think
0: he's playing. At, is he on, is he on Spotify? I'll go look him up.
2: I'm sure he is. Okay. I'm sure
0: he is. <laughs> yeah. Look it up.
2: He's, he has, I, I was, it, it, did you notice this on Wikipedia? He has 250 approximately
0: albums out. I saw a number. Really? <laughs> 264 yeah, studio. I yeah. I know this 264 because I, I thought of H264 and I thought, yeah, yeah, 264 studio albums. I wonder how many of them it's are on, insane. are on Spotify. It's gotta be a few of them. Not all 264. (laughs) No, probably Maybe they have a limit.
2: So that's my post-show pick of the week. All right. I'm going
0: to check it out. And if you also look at the Wikipedia page, they have the only known photograph of him without his mask, if you're curious. Of course, it's kind of a backside picture, so it's not very good. I've actually seen him without the mask. You've seen him without the mask.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's not not performing. He always wears it when he's performing. But I actually saw him... uh, this was almost 20 years ago now. Do a, a solo show uh, down in Santa Barbara when I lived down there at this tiny, tiny little club. I mean, there couldn't have been more than 30 or 40 people in the club. And it was an all acoustic set, which was, you know, for him very unusual because he's usually really loud and, 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 uh, you know, very, very high energy. But this was, this was a like a, a one off thing of just, he just played all acoustic. And so he just showed up at the club. And with his amp and a guitar, and he's there before the show. He's just there setting up his equipment without the mask on, and he just he just looked like a regular guy. I mean, he was <laughs> really was just a regular guy. And then he put then he went behind stage, came back out with the mask and the hat, and and he was it. <laughs> <laughs> complete transformation. But you could tell it was him because he's got a very unusual shape, <laughs> in that he's he's very tall and and thin and has you know really long fingers and stuff i mean very kind of spiderish sort of almost um and uh so it's clearly recognizable as him all right
0: he is on spotify there are maybe i didn't count them but maybe like 50 records are on here so you
2: know if you like that style of music and you kind of won't know until you try it uh then you'll then you'll really like him. not he's, he's not everybody's cup of tea i have to be honest about that okay um if you like stuff like um uh, Primus, you know Les Claypool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these bring mm-hmm. any bells. If you yeah. like that kind of stuff, then you'll probably like him. He also he was in a band once called uh, Guns N' Roses. You ever heard of them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he really was. I mean, this was after they were. This is after they were really big. He he joined them after Ax What's his name? Slash. I guess was the first guitarist. Mm-hmm. He left, and they needed a replacement for him. Um. So he so he joined for a couple of years to tour. Uh. So um. Yeah, I mean, he plays some, you know, relatively accessible stuff, but a lot of his stuff is pretty out there.
0: All right. I'm curious now. Uh, Mostly curious about to get into the mind of Dr. Rubin, see what kind of music he listens to. So uh, I'm going to check it out. I
2: listen to a lot of different music, so (laughs) uh, that could take a long time.
0: (laughs) All right. Tim just checked in with me on Slack saying, did you guys start later? And I was like, oh, how did he know? I just told him we were wrapping up and yes, we started an hour later. So...
2: Well, then we started at a civilized west coast i was time. just gonna say i didn't have to <laughs> yeah, rush it was, it was, i did yeah. i did rush
0: home anyway just in case but i didn't have to rush home i i rushed home and i still oh, maybe i'll eat something i can you know go collect the mail and go through it so it was nice it was nice yeah. and uh, oh so we, we we talked about this on the show
1: um the last time. I think it ended up in the after show. Uh, you are working for Instagram, right? That's where you, you ended up? That is like correct. I saw that on a Realm video. Yeah, yes, okay. yes. Instagram is it. Okay, cool. Cool Cool deal. Yeah, man, you got, you got to fix that. that I, I had issue. it in my
0: mind. I had it in my OmniFocus. And then um, I was kind of in and out of the office today in other um, kind of post-noob training sessions. So I wasn't actually at mm-hmm. my desk for very much. But I did have it on my list to look into that. Because maybe it is like somebody forgot to update the six plus. You said you have a six plus, right?
1: A six plus. So like yeah, maybe f- yeah. someone
0: forgot to update the three X asset, and they updated the two X one or something like that. So I did have it on my list to look at, but I did not. But I do have my uh, work laptop here, and uh, I can always connect to the VPN and have a look. But uh, yeah, yeah I-, I didn't get to it. But I will send some follow up. I will tweet some follow up if I find anything. Awesome. The fact
2: that you're at Instagram explains the Ask MTJC questions.
0: Did the ones that or... i didn't get to you mean
2: yeah 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 so yeah. the one guy asked why is my instagram map always in black and white <laughs> that
0: was tim yes oh was that tim it was mtjc yeah, N- N- podcast the podcast tweeted that out
2: oh it was oh, okay yeah, okay that, that and then the guy true. replying to him asking what what protocol what <laughs> protocol do <to> you use <laughs> so i guess he was asking you
0: <laughs> yeah yeah he mentioned me in there so i think he might work at does he still work at, it's Nolan number does he still work at twitter yes he works at twitter uh, um, so so no he wants to know yeah, yeah yeah so i thanked him at the end of the show but i did not answer i <laughs> did not we only got one real question uh which we answered but um yeah
2: let's see this was episode 98 right
0: yeah i think i made a folder there was no folder you guys are running out of the folder so i did make one and i should be able to upload it there we, we run out of them because
1: they get saved for posterity and occasionally get recycled. Um, oh well, you you know, so, so that they're not you know they're not wasted. You know, is it like
0: table view cells? You got to uh, re- <laughs> yes. they're expensive to spin up and you got to recycle them. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I never got a straight answer out of Tim on that one. I think maybe he's worried about like an. I know it exhaustion or something that like <laughs> on Dropbox and on
0: System Nine or something. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why he's recycling. <laughs> I don't think that's an issue anymore, but I guess.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
0: Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.